Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Tibble. From inside the centre square. Time of day, everyone. Welcome to episode number 131 of Americans Watching the Footy. Our round 24 recap, the final time you'll get to hear us recap nine games in excruciating detail in which we will read off every single possession in order. We're, we're not going to do that. And if either of us is interrupted, we will start from the beginning. I am Benjamin Castle. I am Ethan Castle. And, uh, yeah, here we are. Not many... Super new conclusions this round, I think. I think this is a round that kind of verified a lot of what we had already believed about these clubs, except for the fact that I expected the dogs to manage to make the eight. I think we got a couple of interesting things to go over, at least. I think we're going to have some fun discussing this. You know what wasn't fun? The Friday Nighter. So here's how this game is going to work. You are going to start describing this game to me, and then when I feel that we've devoted enough time to this game... I am going to loudly interrupt you. Essendon, 313-31, defeated by Collywood, 16-5-101. Anthony McTonnell... Boo! Okay. Five seconds, yeah. Okay, seriously, though, we're disappointed that Walla couldn't get a goal. I would have liked to see... You know how you see those, like, foundation for a better life type moments? Or Actually, I don't know if you have that in Australia. You know, where it's like, team is kicking other team's butt, so team lets other team get a free goal. It... I would have liked to see someone, whether it was Mason or whoever, just, like, hand the ball on straight to Walla and just let him go in and kick it, and then, like, both teams go and celebrate with him. Compassion. Pass it on. Or if Darcy Parrish could have just made sure that he got one. I mean, there were there were chances. But... Oh, there were chances, and you know, you know what? If Darcy Parrish doesn't get signed again by Essendon, I will say it is exclusively because of that. Now, the final score suggests that Essendon had a decent amount of chances and just pissed them away. But it was also 49-2 after a quarter. It was 68-3 before Essendon finally got a goal. And then from there, could the Bombers have made the score look better? Sure. But I think their inaccuracy kind of helped drive the point home. I found it incredibly funny that it was Sam Wiedemann, of all people, who got Essendon's first goal. Firstly, because he hadn't scored since round 10. And secondly, because both his father and grandfather played for Collingwood. In fact, his grandfather, Murray Wiedemann, was Collingwood's last September Premiership captain in 1958. Uh, Wiedemann ended up with two goals in this game, right? He had two of the three. The other was Kyle Langford, who kicked 1-4, and uh, that that was basically it. Yeah, Collingwood have won their 20th minor Premiership. That's a record. It's their first in 12 years. Essendon actually have the second most at 17. Yeah, it was, you know, a very disappointing end of the season for Essendon, where if you had told me from the start of the year, that they would finish at 11th, 
and go 11 and 12 and be like, all right, that's actually not that bad. It's just kind of the order of things. And we'll get into much more of that in our So You Didn't Make the Eight, which is going to be a two-part series. Yeah, just like last year, we're just going to give more in-depth post-mortems about the 10 clubs that didn't crack finals because so often, once you reach the end of the home and away season, those clubs are ignored entirely unless we get some trade news about them. And we want to give them their due. The way the way I've presented it, history is written by the winners, but who writes about the losers? We do. I wonder what that says about us. Anyway, but yeah, this this was never close. Essendon in their final two games were outscored by 196 points, and yet that doesn't even pale in comparison to what the Eagles did between those games against Adelaide and Sydney. We knew they had trouble defensively. That was never a secret, but their inability to score, which wasn't entirely set shot issues. I mean, it was largely in this game in the second half, but like against GWS, they just didn't have chances at all. And come finals now, we expect Darcy Moore to be back in. Looks like Nick Dacos is going to be out for the qualifying final, but there are going to be some list questions for Collingwood, considering that Jack Univan's playing so well. I think you really have to find a way to keep him in, and considering his track record in finals and his performance in the last couple weeks, you got to have Mason Cox in there. It makes it really difficult, honestly, to maybe keep in Dan McStay as crazy as that sounds. I mean, I like Cameron and McStay staying up forward together, but it's hard to navigate having three talls in a lot of the time, and, and Melbourne's a hard team to overwhelmed with talls just because of how Stephen May and Jake Lieber play. So that's a puzzling one. I I'm happy that we're I'm happy that people are so heavily considering Mason for a finals role again. He's very much deserving of it. The thing that also made this game not entertaining is how clearly Collinwood took their foot off the gas in the second half. I don't blame them. You're focused on being healthy for finals. You're just making sure nobody gets hurt. I was happy that Finn McRae got some decent time. He got subbed in for Jamie Elliott and immediately got a center clearance because, of course, he did. So entering finals, you take this lineup for Collingwood, and you're going to have to make three changes to bring in Darcy Moore, Bo McCreary, and Nathan Murphy. Can you even fit in McCreary, as crazy as that sounds? Who comes out? Jeremy Howe? I think Jeremy Howe comes out. I think the awkwardness of having him in that sort of wing role has not served him well. He's very much still a backliner. You know what I would do? Like I'd, I'm thinking like how Hoskett Elliott, he's he's always kind of that next guy out. And then how do you navigate? I mean, does Ginevan's success combine with Murphy coming back in? I mean, I imagine Billy Frampton could be one to squeeze out for Nathan Murphy to come back in. Maybe John Noble's at risk as well if Ginevan stays in. Ginevan and Hill working together was Fun. I'm glad that they are not mutually exclusive, uh, Ginevan and Bobby Hill. I, I have so many things that are tough to answer here, but I th I think one of Ginevan or Hal is going to be the sub. I would probably put Hal there. I think Hal would be great in that role because he showed he can play up forward, he can play in defense. You think about the way that Joel Smith has worked as the sub for the Demons and how he can be that between 50 swingman as well. Ginevan is a great spark to have in late, and maybe McCreary coming back in could make that a possibility, but I, at this point, I'd say Ginevan in the 22. That said, he and Bobby Hill are both going to be suspended by the Spanish Football Federation for their kissing celebration. No, no, they're not resigning. They are not resigning, but they are being suspended. Tom Mitchell led Collingwood with 33 disposals. He had seven clearances and kicked a goal. Jordan Degoe, who's 
probably not deserving of being in the 40-man All-Australian squad, but has had a good season nonetheless. A goal, 27 disposals, 524 meters. Josh Dacos, a goal, 25 disposals, 7 marks. Jack Crisp, John Noble, and Braden Maynard each with 21 disposals. Maynard also with 7 marks. Scott Pendlery, a goal off, 21 disposals. Will Hoskin Elliott, 20 disposals and 10 marks. I mean, if he's one who gets squeezed out, that, that's a very good problem to have. Isaac Coiner, 18 disposals and 8 marks. Collingwood with 17 more inside 50s. And again, the team stats only look more respectable because they took their foot off the gas in the second half. Shocker, Zach Merritt led Essendon in disposals. It's either him or Darcy Parrish every week. And if Parrish is going out, then it's going to be Merritt even more often. The captain kicked two behinds from 36 disposals, 11 marks, and 590 meters gained. Parrish a behind from 29 disposals and 9 tackles. Nick Martin with 26 disposals. Sam Durham with 25 and 10 marks. Looking at the defense, Jaden Laverde led the way with 31, 15 marks, and 12 intercept possessions. He needs more tall support. And with Brandon Zerk Thatcher possibly leaving, that's going to get more dire. I hope they just don't ridiculously overpay for Ben McKay, but I see it happening. I mean, are there tall defenders available in the draft, or will there be others available elsewhere? I think you got it. I mean, uh, it's the obvious hole. We we know that. The uh, I guess the only other desperation thing is, do you see them maybe trying to trade up for someone like Dan Curtin, the Westerner? 195 centimeters, so that's something like 6-4? All right, that works for me. Yeah, um, it, it, it would require a lot of compensation to Northerner to make that work. But if they if they don't get Mackay, I'd say Curtin is Curtin should be in play for them. Dyson Heppel had 23 disposals and nine marks. I've liked I've liked him for a lot of the year. Andrew McGrath had a better first half and second half. 23 disposals and seven marks for him. We know Mason Redmond's staying. Kicked him behind from 20 disposals, nine marks and 494 meters. Wonder if he regrets signing that deal with how they closed out the campaign. Last thing I'll say: at least Essa did learn from last week and wore their seatbelts for this car crash. Now they've got to strap in for probably another decade of Adrian Dodoro as their list manager. Thanks to Sir Swamp Thing, we do have a couple of fun facts surrounding the great... 43 wasn't just his number, it was his highest score in a game. He kicked 7-1 against the Brisbane Lions in 2019, and it's what his full name is worth in Scrabble. Now that's not including middle names, right? No, if you add in William and Watson, it... Takes it up a good amount. Let me just double check. Isn't isn't W worth like 10? I don't think W is that high. It might be 4 or 5. And I thought W was... Oh, no. W, yeah. W is only 4. Yeah. Q and Z are 10. And X is 8, I think. So is J. From playing Wordle and stuff, I realized like how rare a letter J is. J should probably be 10, really, when you think about it. Pulling up Kate Spanos' Scrabble calculator. Anthony. William. Watson. McDonald. Tip on Woody, 64. We had two games start at the same time on Saturday. Joining the chorus, North Melbourne, 2012, 132, defeating Gold Coast, 14-13-97. How fitting is it that they scored 20 goals to snap their 20-game streak? It could have been also fitting to get 21 or 22 because Eddie Ford had suffered 21 losses to begin his career before winning game 22. Big fans of Eddie Ford here. I caught on a bit more quickly than you did, but he kicked three goals in this game and was, I think we caught on around the same time. I think I was covering the game where, where he really broke out, though. He was the rising star nominee for this last round, kicking three goals straight from 19 disposals and eight marks. But 
If you're thinking about goals from this game, it's not Eddie Ford that comes to mind. It's Nick Larkey who kicked 9-3 from 21 disposals at 11 marks to finish on 71 for the year on a cellar dweller. It was also Aiden Core because he kicked one. He actually had a decent game. When Aiden Core kicked a goal, that, that was the last sign that, oh shit, they're actually winning this. Gold Coast, for the second week in a row, got off to a big early lead. This time it was 45-17. to 17. North closed it to six going into the half, took the lead early in the third, and really just rolled them from there. In the second half, they outscored them 84-43, to 43, including six goals in the third and another seven in the fourth. I would say the surprising takeaways from this game, I thought Charlie Lazaro played pretty well. I haven't really thought much of him. I thought he was just a guy. Maybe he could be, you know, the sort of guy that you start moving around into that picture of, yeah, this guy could be part of our team when we're really contending a few years down the road. I'd thought of him as part of their fringe. He'd been the sub a couple times. Pick 36 from 2020, I believe. So he's around 21 years old. Oh, I should mention to you, Ethan, he was a Geelong Falcon. Interesting. (laughs) Just anytime I see Geelong Falcons or Geelong grammar and anything, Oh, he is a longtime friend of Ollie Henry. Even better. That's <laughs> why so I thought Tristan Jerry played a really nice game. Good job. I did not expect him to take care of Jared Witts and Mobby Archols easily that he did. Yeah, Scholl ended up getting a decent amount of the center bounce action. It seemed like just about every time Jerry was able to do something with it. Other than that, I mean, not, not really too many surprises. It was kind of just a continuation of last week from the Suns, not just that they got off to a hot start, but that they struggled defensively. Sam Collins had a nice year, did not end well. Charlie Ballard, same deal. He ended up actually, you know, uh, Collins actually got switched off of Nick Larkey after I believe it was goal number six. And then Mac Andrew did a better job on him. And that's, that's really all there is to it. I think, I mean, quite the list predicament for uh, Damian Hardwick going in with this being how they finished things off. I was wondering also, you know, with some of the changes that the Suns made, bringing in Chris Burgess and Alex Davies, was some of this keeping some guys fresh for the VFL finals run? They were minor premiers in the VFL, and I believe they were qualifying final as a Q-Clash. I, yeah, I think so. I would, yeah, that could have affected things, but I still would have liked to see guys like Caleb Graham. The positive I take out of the game for the Suns is kind of just a continuation of what I've said for a while, is that. Malcolm Roses is good. I think it was Dwayne Russell who said, you know, he doesn't get a lot of touches, but they're high impact. You said a few weeks back that he could be a really high assist player. He could be the type of guy, he could give you 30 goals or 30 assists. I have a lot of respect for him. He's a fun player to watch, and I look forward to seeing more of him. I'm also glad that one of the people that we're talking about most for the Suns is one of their Darwin Academy products. You think back to last year when he and Joel Jeffrey really showed out back home for those games in front of their friends and family. And for as long as the Suns have that connection, I hope they're able to foster some great connections with the community and bring in some good players to their list as well. It's like learning recently, watching some of the VFL stuff lately about uh, how Melbourne has Andy Monas Wakefield working up the ranks as a forward from their Alice Spring zone, stuff like that. Bailey Scott, 33 disposals, 10 marks, 588 meters. Harry Sheasel, your likely rising star winner. 29 disposals to cap off a phenomenal rookie season. If Will Ashcroft stayed healthy, do you think he could have beaten Sheasel? Yeah. I'm not sure if he would have, but it would have been a fun debate. 
Uh, Jai Simpkin, a goal, a behind, 29 disposals, 9 score involvements, 7 marks. Charlie Lazaro and Will Phillips, each with 26 disposals and 9 score involvements. Tom Powell, 23 disposals. Josh Goder, 22 disposals and 7 marks. Great game for Taron Thomas, who I think is going to be a pretty sought-after name in free agency if teams are convinced he's handled the off-field stuff. A behind, 22 disposals, 15 contested possessions. 10 clearances, 10 score involvements, 9 tackles. He's just such a high-motor player. Mark's inside 50 were 22-8, to eight, which, again, it was way too easy to mark on Powell and Collins. Other than that, uh, before Benjamin gives the Sun stats, I do want to mention, I thought it was funny seeing Levi Casbolt come out and play, like, the halfback wing at one point. It's, I mean, he's such a dangerous mark anywhere, and I understand if you're tentative going up against him, because it's like, if you go into a marking contest against Levi Casbolt, you're probably thinking, I might die. You can have that same thing going on with Jill Jeffrey. Remember, when he got into AFL action, they had him at that role. And he's stuck with that, I believe, in the VFL. Still a different body type, though. Casbolt is someone that, like, if you had to rank every player, you know, who would you least want to go up against in a marking contest? The winner is Levi Casbolt. And it ain't close. Casbolt over the taller ones like Mason Cox or Max Gaughan. Oh, easily, because those guys probably won't kill you. They might humiliate you, but they won't kill you. Okay, how about then if you're a tall? Still Levi Casbolt. All right then, yeah. The other thing I want to mention, I know this season was unfortunately a bit of a lost cause because of injuries for Tuke Miller, but he has a couple of kicks a game from the midfield that are just so ridiculous. He had one to set up Casbolt late in the third quarter where it was kind of like this spinning snap that cup where you thought there's no way this ball travels like even half the distance it ended up going and then Casbolt had a really nice mark with Aiden Core all over him that's my favorite thing about Tuke Miller is just his ability to hit ridiculously tough kicks on the money like that's one of those dudes you know how you see videos of like NFL kickers hitting stuff with like ridiculous precision like someone sets up a Gatorade bottle on the goalpost and they knock it off that's the sort of thing Tuke Miller could do. And that's another reason why he just st stood out to me at the start of this year as a Brownlow candidate. It's not just that he gets a lot of possessions. He had a goal from 29 disposals and nine score involvements to close out his season, but also that the quality of his disposals can be so high. So I'm really hoping that 2024 is the Brownlow year for him. I want to be right about this. I also want another Gold Coast son to win the Brownlow for multiple reasons, and I, I just want them to succeed. Also, by the way, no, Jack Revolt is not going to be involved with the Suns. I think he was just dressing as Dimmer for Matt Monday, of which I approve. Matt Monday is a good thing. Matt Rowell with 33 disposals, 22 contested possessions. I, I am seeing that correctly. 12 clearances and 9 tackles. That's another thing, you know, if you have Rowell winning the contest and you have guys like Noah Anderson, Sam Flanders, and Tuke Miller going off of those, just great opportunity to generate quality touches if with just a contested bull taking care of a lot of those tougher assignments. Anderson with 29 disposals at 704 meters gain. I believe he made the All-Australian squad, deserving there, I think. Landers kicking two goals from 29 disposals, 12 marks and nine score involvements. Brandon Ellis, inaccurate, three behinds from 28 disposals. It'll be a reunion with uh, Damian Hardwick for him then. He was a Premiership Tiger. Ben Ainsworth with 23 disposals. Alex Davies and Braden Fioriti, both kicking 1-1 from 22. Davies with 12 contested possessions. Don't think of him as much of a contested player, but there are battles to be won on the wing, and he got some of them. 
And Fiorini with 11 score involvements. I'm in, I'll be really keen on watching how Hardwood decides to use him. Darcy McPherson was back in the 22 and had 20 disposals and 7 marks. It was Rory Atkins who was the sub this week, which I didn't necessarily see coming. While North was playing the Suns, I mean, I had my eye on that game and mostly just realizing, wait, North are doing this? They're blowing up their tank? When the talk in the media all week was, North have no reason to win this game, and it's like, aha, hi Victoria, yes, you're doing this now, after the Eagles were in the position all year to tank. But while North were sorting things out on the southern end of Tasmania, back on the mainland at the G, it was Hawthorne 8-8-56, defeated by Fremantle 14-9-93. This was the Sarong Ryan standoff rumble, I believe that was the name that you came up with? Is that right? I think so. But they did not play Brandon Ryan on his cousin Luke. So, boo. I actually disagreed with a decent amount of things that Sam Mitchell did in this game, and it starts with that. Firstly, just, you have cousins who can play against each other in your 450. Take it on. It's a dead rubber. Make it fun. Actually, going up against Luke Ryan was Finn McGinnis? A 450 tag? Now, against some teams, I can understand that working. You know, I could see, you know, Hawthorne, if they're doing like an inter-squad thing, trying out a McGinnis tag on James Sicily. I could see it working on someone like Sam Taylor. But the problem is, a forward tag only works when you don't have such glaring issues in the midfield and winning at stoppages. And Hawthorne had those issues thanks to the players with the two most disposals this season of the AFL, Caleb Sarong and Andrew Brayshaw. I was shocked that McGinnis never moved on to either of them. Connor Nash isn't able to do it all there. He doesn't have the body type to be able to tag those guys in the first place. McGinnis ended up actually moving to the wing to play on Liam Henry, and that confused me even more. And yeah, just one of the rare times this year that I had multiple issues with what Sam Mitchell was doing. And I would love to pick his brain about why he came up with this plan for this round. Was was it because it was a dead rubber that he was willing to try things out? That's my rationale. I think, you know, they knew they were locked into 16. It seemed like a good time to just throw stuff at the wall and give things a shot. They didn't stick. Hawthorne were plus 13 in clearances still, but it was really the movement off stoppages once Frio won it, where they really got burned a lot of the time. My favorite player to watch for Frio this week was not one of their typical playmakers. It was second game Tom Emmett. Now, I believe I've had the assignment on, on both of the last two Frio games. I guess he had their last three games because he also had Western Derby. Oh, shit, you're right, yeah. So I believe I mentioned this last week because Emmett came in as a replacement into the 22 for Sonny Walters because he was dealing with a calf problem, won the ball well on the ground, kicked a couple goals. I was really wondering how Emmett was going to be used now that he was playing with Walters. Had really great vision and some deliveries to Walters in the first quarter that I noted and just looked comfortable all over the four two-thirds of the ground. Emmett kicked two goals again from 17 disposals and 10 score involvements. That was tied for the game lead, along with his teammates Sarong and Rayshaw. This is the second game we're doing that stuff. Mature age recruit from Sturt, who battled cancer at age 16 and a severe Achilles tendon injury at age 18. And I can see the maturity, and they're just with the precision that he has, the decision-making under pressure... I don't care that I'm an Eagles fan. I really like this guy. Emmett was part of the some of the speed and turnover work in the forward half, and it was something that worked all over the ground. It was refreshing 
to watch Rio play this way because it's how they should have played all along. I beg of Justin Longmuir to make that the plan from round one next year. Yeah, so that's the real new conclusions I have out of this game. It's largely the same stuff otherwise. Uh, for Hawthorne, nice for Dylan Moore to have another big game, especially in grand final week for fantasy. I held on to him the whole way and was rewarded for it late. Yeah, I can't say I would have done the same there. Now, he's, I believe, out of my 22, because we had, you know, a full lineup, 18 plus four emergencies. I believe I stuck with 11 of them the whole way, and four of them were in this game. Jordan Clark, Andrew Brayshaw, Jai Newcomb, and Dylan Moore. Moore has just these man-possessed games sometimes, and this was one of them even in defeat. The other big win for Hawthorne was that Luke Roost does not look like he's going to be hanging it up anytime soon. He was outdoing Corey Wagner in nearly every contest. And when the tempo increased, he was able to play up to it and really stay involved. Andrew Brayshaw had the most disposals, 33 of them. Kicked a goal from 10 score involvements, 8 tackles, and 513 meters. 10 score involvements as well, as I said earlier, along with Brayshaw and Emmett for Caleb Sarong, who kicked a point from 32 disposals and 9 clearances. Hayden Young continuing in more of that midfield role. Somewhat of a tag at times, 22 disposals and 7 tackles. Jordan Clark and Luke Ryan with 21 disposals each and some good marking numbers. Frio were over 10% more efficient in terms of disposing of the ball inside 50. Battle 3 being minus 15 in hitouts and minus 13 in clearances. We're also the heavier pressure team laying 64 tackles to Hawthorne's 45. Will Day finishes his excellent season with 30 disposals. Dylan Moore, a goal, two behinds, 27 disposals, 9 marks. Blake Hardwick, 25 disposals and 10 marks. James Sicily, a behind, 25 disposals, 12 marks, 11 intercepts. Between Hardwick and Sicily, I'm really liking the smaller side of Hawthorne's back six. It's a matter of the taller defense that can still be a bit of an issue for. Jarvin Impey, 24 disposals and 9 marks. Carl Aim on a goal, 23 disposals, 9 marks, 548 meters. Connor Nash, 23 disposals. Jai Newcomb, a goal and 23 disposals. James Warple, a goal and 23 disposals. And Connor McDonald, a behind, 20 disposals and 7 marks. Brisbane, 9 defeating St. Kilda, 9-6-60. Uh, the Saints kind of returned to their early season ways in that they got really lucky with a team kicking very poorly against them, but unlike when that happened early in, the, early in the year, it wasn't enough to make a difference. The Lions finished the home and away season 11-0 at home, which means it would be really funny if they lost a final at home, which I could totally see happening. That said, I could also see them riding this wave all the way to the grand final, and if they could actually win a game at the G, you know, this, this was my pick from the start of the year. This is a really good team. And Devin Robertson is now plus 60,000 Instagram followers since having his jumper ripped. I just checked it. He's now 71.1K. And he finally addressed it in a post this week, which probably helps that. Lions should have been up way more early. It was 20 to 19 after a quarter because they kicked 2 8 to the Saints 3 1. At halftime, it was 4 11 35 to 3 3 21. And after three, it was 7 11 53 to 7 5 47. And then they. It never really felt like they were under any serious heat. They finished things off without ever truly pulling away, but they were generally up in that goal-to-two-goal window. It This game didn't ever feel like there was really any significant chance of them blowing it, yeah? No, even with it being a 12-point game with 88 seconds left after Tim Membry scored, 
that was you know, off a very quick coast-to-coast passage that Naziah Magadine Miller started. His precision kicking has been really important this year for the Saints, and I'm looking forward to watch his continued development. The uh, expected score for this game, going by X score, counting rushed behinds, 105.7 to 54.2 in the Lions' favor. It's a matter of, of them just having some horror misses. Joe Danaher with a few of them as he was eyeing his 50th goal on the season, which he did end up getting. So basically, and we're going a bit off schedule here, but if the Lions had kicked better, the Giants would have a home final. That's one way to put it. Yeah. I don't know why I hadn't really thought about that, but that's definitely the case. Other things I, I took note of, it was a shaky start for Josh Dunkley, but he got back into things somewhat. Didn't have any huge numbers, but was a quality piece when it mattered. It was a more prominent game for Jared Berry, who had 25 disposals, 7 marks and 7 tackles, 525 meters gained. If you have Berry and Dane Zorko, who kicked a goal one from 22, 12 marks and 10 score involvement, as your number three and four guys in the midfield, that's a really good look going into finals. And maybe even four and five if you consider McCluggage in there. But I, I still think of Hugh McCluggage is more of an outside piece, kind of a quasi-wing. I do really like the way McCluggage has played lately, though. And, and another game where he gets to 20 disposals and they win. I don't think it's a perfect record, but it's pretty good when that happens. There was one they lost a few weeks ago because Neil had been limited. Right. It, this game, it, it felt like we were just waiting for Brisbane to kick straight and actually make their forward time matter. They never did. And when the Saints started to be more aggressive in the third quarter, switching from going down the line to challenging through the middle, like uh, like this list is very capable of doing, it felt a little tense, but that was really it. I just checked on that McCluggish stat. Yeah, 22 in the loss to the Ds, 28 in Q-Clash. Q-Clash was the one, I think, because of the lockdown job Tuke Miller did on Lockie Neal. That's an, that's just another example of why I love watching Tuke Miller going back to a couple games ago there. So the Lions wrap up second. They're hosted Port Adelaide in the qualifying final. Their first finals matchup since the uh, very intense 04 grand final where uh, one Alistair Lynch was at the center of all that conflict. You three-time premiership player with the Brisbane Lions. In case you haven't been able to tell, we love Lynchy. Especially with most games being in Queensland in 2020, he may have been the first media figure we were able to identify and say, oh, we know who this guy is. Like, even even faster than we noticed, oh, this John Ralph guy is getting a lot of airtime in the newsroom. And then we go on to learn about his playing career, and yeah, we love Lynchy. Locking Yola behind, 30 disposals, 17 contested possessions, 10 clearances. The AFL.com Brownlow predictor actually has him winning it as of now. Darcy Wilnot, 20 disposals and 9 marks. Oscar McInerney, a goal. 30 hitouts, 15 disposals, 8 clearances. That McInerney goal was a snap of all things in a crowd. A fun little celebration after doing the shark to celebrate his new son, Finn. Yeah, that was good. That's that's better than the Rocking Baby celebration, I think. Like, I'd have to agree, because the Rocking Baby is just kind of like, it's been done. Exactly. If, if you got something inspired by the name or something, no, that's... Points for originality for Big O. Now, what do you do if your kid's name is Xerxes? Hopefully you have a Falcon in a motorcycle sidecar at the ready. For Xerxes, every meal is a pageant. Lions were plus 23 inside 50s, plus 16 in clearances. That was where Neil and McInerney really cleaned up. Despite the more forward time they had, they were also plus 9 on tackles inside 50, 18 to 9. I really like the pressure 
they were able to put on throughout this game. For the Saints, Jack Sinclair with 30 disposals, 7 marks and 608 meters gained. Brad Crouch a goal from 26 disposals. I didn't think he'd be figuring into things this much still. I'd written him off a bit at the start of the season and I was unwise to do so. Rowan Marshall should have been my captain. 27 hitouts, 24 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and 9 clearances. He actually finally had some rush support in this game. More on that in a second. Marcus Windhager with 22 disposals. Glad he's gotten some more time as the year's gone on. Jade Gresham kicking 1-1 from 21. We'll see what his status is after this season. Mason Wood, 1-1 from 16 disposals and 8 marks. And in defense, Cal Wilkie taking 9 marks and 12 intercepts in a 21 disposal performance. And Nazai Wagonin Miller had 20 disposals. So yeah, about that ruck support. Welcome back, Jack, 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 Jack Hayes. Was very glad that he got back into things. Had a nice setup to Brad Crouch for a goal early in the third, and then late in that quarter had a goal on return. That was just awesome to see, considering how long it's been for him to get back in between his ruptured ACL. That I think was an ankle issue as well. Just a long time coming. The big negative, I think, for the Saints for this game was Jimmy Webster. I don't want to pile it on him, but he looked every day of his 30 years old with how Charlie Cameron and Hugh McCluggage humiliated him a couple times en route to some goals, some angle breaker stuff there. The Saints need some greater defensive depth if they're going to make it through even one week of finals. It's a question of who's able to step up. Really, in this game, it was just Wilkie in the back. You need to have some sort of supporting cast there, whether it's Josh Battle, Liam Stalker, Jimmy Webster, maybe. So that's something where I see a concern as they look to match up against Greater Western Sydney. Two games on Saturday night, separated by 45 minutes. The first one, Geelong 11-13-79, defeated by the Western Bulldogs 16-8-104. My brief conclusions, glad that the Cats were able to stay in this game as long as they did. Disappointing that they weren't able to make good on their three-quarter time lead, but they were out of their depth in the end and kicked in accurately. It really showed that they were missing Tom Hawkins, Gary Rowan, Brad Close, Jeremy Cameron, etc. Still, though, if you're throwing out that sort of lineup against a side that's contended for the eight all season, and I laugh at the fact that they didn't make it the dogs. Oh, hey, whoa, spoiler alert. I'd still be pretty pleased, all things considered. And really, I guess the start of that is Toby Conway forcing some issues. Even for Tim English, Conway made the unthinkable happen. Luke Beveridge making an in-game adjustment. Yeah, um, the dogs had to switch Rory Lobb to really do the work against him, and they moved English to more matchup with Shannon Neal. Geelong led 53-38 to at half, led by as much as 21, could have been up more, but kicked 2-5 for the first quarter and 7-11 for the first half. Considering that expected score for this game was, if you include the rush behinds, about 99-88, to you could very easily argue that the Caps probably win this game with Tom Hawkins, Jeremy Cameron, Gary Rowan. I think really two of those three would have been enough to do it. Brad Close as well. The Bulldogs ended up winning the fourth quarter 39 to 6, and it was 39 to nothing before a late goal for Tyson Stengel. It was a great hustle play. That was nice to see. You know, final minute, your season's done, and he was still working his ass off. That was that was entertaining. But like, largely speaking, this was a fun watch and um good loss, you know, puts you in a better draft position. Young guys played well. Gave Isaac Smith a decent send-off still. He had the opening goal. Had the opening goal in a game-high 
36 disposals. He could bow out with three votes as Dan Hanabry did last year. Could easily argue Marcus Bontempelli gets three over him to win the medal. I think Rory Lobb's got to get a vote out of this game. I think Tom Libertore put up a vote-worthy performance. It would be tough to leave Smith out, though. It's it's tough to say. Um, my Geelong observations, I got a bunch of them. And they generally fit under this general umbrella of the young guys should have been playing sooner because they showed a lot. Not so young, but Jed Hughes looked way better with the game under his belt and should have been in over Jake Kolajashny sooner because Hughes was awful last week. Not so young. Uh... Yeah, he's 29. Uh, O'Sheen Mullen, the athletic ability is on display, but also the, you know, there were a lot of times where it's evident he's still very new to this version of football. And I think realistically, he'll get some games in 2024. I think 2025 is really going to be the year of O'Sheen. I think that's when he's going to totally O'Sheen people. Jake Colajashi just looks finished. He was bad. Uh, Sam DeConing either had his su talent sucked away by the Monstars or switch places with Tom Dakota because Tom's had a really nice season and Sam hasn't. Sam really hasn't been the same since the facial injury. By the way, he was Batman for Mad Monday. Kind of had to go that direction because it's, you really couldn't pull off Rip Hamilton properly. You know what? This is, how are we going to tell if Tom Dakota is switched with Sam? If Carlton somehow go on to win the flag and he wears a cup on his head. Yes, thank you. But Sam Dakota needs a nice offseason. I'd say two weeks vacation, whether that's to Bali or to America. Come here to the Bay Area. We'll show you around. Yes, any footy player that visits the Bay Area, we will offer up free tour guide services, transportation. Have them on here. Yeah, welcome to join the podcast. Go out and have some drinks. Will be a lot of fun. So come on down or up. I guess if if you know North is up. I don't know. You have some weird maps in Australia. But the 2024 cats need him to be good. Uh. Ollie Dempsey looked up for the challenge, so did Mitch Nevitt. Dempsey, a goal, 15 disposals, 8 tackles. Nevitt ended up getting subbed out to get Ted Close, his debut. He didn't get to do a ton, he was only in there for a quarter. Uh, I know the guys at Chaps Chat Cats really like him. I didn't see enough of him to really pass any judgment. You know who I did pass judgment on? Brandon Parfit. In this what, what, what happened to him? Was, was, was his injury early in the season affecting him that much? I mean, he was bad before he had gotten hurt. It might be just the knowledge that, like, I need to show out to stay on this tee. He saved his ass multiple times before. I think the biggest question with roster construction for 2024 comes down to, do you see Brandon Parfit as an everyday midfielder? Because if he plays like this, you know, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tom Libertore, like, yeah, keep him around. That was, that was an excellent showing. It was like, where, if, if this had shown up all year, this team's playing finals. It's, it's that simple. Uh, also, Sam Menegola has something left in the tank. And I think after seeing his performance, it's like, you want to reconsider, maybe keep him around on the list after all. I know that would have been tough to do, all things considered. I think also with them going in a younger direct gin, it's going to be a bit more difficult there. It's going to be 32 by the time next season starts. But he's still got a lot of speed. I really like this performance. That's another, you know, what if he was healthy? There are a lot of what ifs this season. I see in a weird way the Eagles taking a flyer on him, even at that age, if they're looking for speed. It's like how, you know, you, you brought in Jaden Hunt to get some speed into a lineup to play with some youngsters. Yeah, he is. He's from the West. Yeah, he's a, an East Fremantle product. Had been on Frio's list before, but didn't get an AFL game before. Coming to Geelong, he was also on Hawthorne's list as well, which I did not realize. 
rookie list for both of them. But yeah, Toby Conway looks like an AFL-ready Ruckman immediately. Faded a little in the second half, as a lot of the team did. But he went out there against one of the two or three best Ruckman in the sport, went toe-to-toe with him, outplayed him at times. You know what else was cool was Reese Stanley was playing in a different role. He lined up at halfback, he did some stuff at half-forward, and he actually kicked pretty well. It was like a Mark Blitzov's light. Not quite. It was kind of his own thing, but maybe you could work a lineup next year where you have Conway and Stanley in there and Blitzov. As crazy as that sounds, like, you seem good problems to have, though. You seem to be higher on Stanley going into next year than most Cats fans. You know, if he ain't willing to accept more of a reserve role, you know, as kind of the number two Ruckman, I think this team could be really strong. It's just this sort of effort, this sort of performance would have won a lot of games. But as we'll get into in the So You Didn't Crack the Eight, I think there's a good chance down the road we look back at this season and having the additional offseason as a very necessary thing. And and there might be an article somewhere down the road, you know, how missing finals in 2023 allowed Geelong to, you know, and whether that's win a binding premiership, win a flag, make a grand final, allowed Hawkins and Cameron to have one last ride or something. Yeah, this this is going to be a net positive. Uh, on, the, on the dog side, so other than making the Rory Lobb switch and him playing really well, Latham Vanderbeer played a really nice third quarter and then got subbed off with a calf injury, I believe it was. Yeah, that calf tightness. Yeah, that was frustrating. Vanderbeer was a really versatile piece for them. So where exactly did you see him playing best in this game? Because they tried him in a bunch of different spots. He was kind of everywhere, but around the center square, around half forward. And then the fourth quarter, a lot of Anthony Scott, which that tends to happen when these guys go on big runs. So that's not that surprising. Uh, Jamara finished the game strong after a quiet first three quarters. And it seemed like the Dogs really did a good job utilizing open space on the wing to create advantages when they went on their searches in the second half. And that's one thing that, you know, I guess if you had to knock Metagola for something, since he is really a wing player, that neither he or Max Holmes were able to really contest that. Not that either had a lousy game offensively by any means, but I guess wing defense, there was something left to be desired. But considering that, again, this was like essentially a community series game just with a send-off for some legends... It went pretty well. And yes, Isaac Smith deserves the, the legend categorization from the two clubs combined, I'd say so. Champion, at least. Great that Luke Bruce, after, even after losing that game earlier in the day, came down the highway to send off his triple premiership teammate. There were a couple other former Hawks there, and I, I love just, like, what the relationship between Geelong and Hawthorne fans is like right now, where it's like, like, the Geelong fan will say to the Hawthorne fan, Hey, fuck you. By the way, you guys have a really bright future and a really good young team and coaching staff. And the Hawthorne fan says to the Geelong fan, Hey, fuck you. Thanks for taking care of our guys at the end of their careers. It's like a firm handshake, a smirk, and also saying fuck you. It's like a fun, friendly, but also we still kind of hate you rivalry. I, I I like it. For now. For now, that's the case. We'll see what it's like. I uh, hope it stays like this. You don't want this Hawthorne rivalry to, to turn into, like, complete hatred like someone like Showdown? No, I think it's kind of this... There's a, there's a fun element to this right now. The other fun thing that I'm taking away from this game is that, um... Okay, I fi- we finally know his... We finally remember his name. Jake Rippon was cited again on the TV. Yeah, I just thought of him as Gift Guy. I had found him once before, but I had forgotten because it had been a while. But I'm glad that people were able to connect us. Yeah, um, he... He'd done stuff with, I think, the Chaps before on uh, doing Behind the Play with Paul James. 
just I hope he understands how much the visual of him from the Melbourne game last year. I think it's a great representation of the 2022 season and just of Australia in general. That just like the ferocious Italian salute after I believe it was Cam Guthrie's fourth quarter goal in that round 17 Thursday clash last year. That that was amazing. So bottom line, if you're trying to distill this into like a sentence, Cats youngsters shown well and forced the issue that really they should have been in for longer. And the dogs cleaned up where they needed to and their experience shown through in the end. Well, they can rely on that experience for... Oh, wait. We'll talk a lot more about this team during So You Didn't Crack the Eight, which was not something I expected to say at time. Stats, you buffoon. Okay, fuck, wait. Do, do the bulldog stats, though. I love you, bear of you. But yeah, about those, uh... Yeah, about those bulldogs, Adam Trelora led the way with 33 disposals, taking two goals straight. Tom Liberatore, what did he not do? A goal from 32, 16 contested, 9 tackles, 8 clearances, 530 meters. Well, he didn't defeat the Kaiser in 1932. We had to say dickity, because the Kaiser had stolen our weird 20. He also didn't defeat the giant monkey man to save the ninth dimension. He didn't even defeat the little monkey man and save the 8th dimension. Marcus Pontepelli with 31 disposals and an octopus forced the issue in terms of Brownlow voting. Not sure if this is enough to get him over Nick Dacos or Lockie Neal or Christian Petraga or whoever. We will have more Brownlow night drama this year, and I am all for it. I think we might see a tie this year. I would understand that, yeah. If we do, do we sing the song? Oh, us and Barish, absolutely. The Barrickville singers might just be on repeat. Instead of the, like, the music from the Untouchables that plays right after they finish reading the final votes, they should just play It's a Draw by the Barrickville Singers. And Richards, with 29 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 584 meters, he has been the breakout defender of the season for the Bulldogs, even with Liam Jones coming back in. Riley West, with 24 disposals, is not something I saw coming, but a good end to the season for one of their father-son players. Bailey Dale, with 20 disposals. Dale. He, he did a lot kind of leading him out of the goal square, struggled there early, got better there as the game went on. Along with Richards, he's one of their players that often leads him out of the defensive 50. Richards more on the inside, Dale toward the boundary. Rory Lobb kicking three goals straight from 16 disposals, 15 hitouts, 12 contested possessions, and seven marks. It took until right near the end of the season for him to get some three-goal performances, which is another point of frustration for Dogs fans. Cody Waitman with two goals, 13 disposals, and 11 tackles, and I don't remember him flopping or anything in this game at all. Yeah, I didn't really notice any. I, there were one or two bad calls, but umpiring wasn't the story of this game. But but Waitman just does not need to do that sort of thing to be effective, and I hope he's realized that toward the end of the season, because I think I've seen it less from him. He's good at football. Is he good for footy? I don't think he's bad for footy. When he doesn't stage, yeah. Cats were nearly 10% more efficient inside 50 and took 21 more marks. And you look at all the stats, really, kicking accuracy was really the... The difference, and yeah, the fourth quarter, you know, maybe it's like, what does that fourth quarter look like if the Cats kick accurately early and jump out to a bigger lead, I think is a fun hypothetical to ask, but I'm I'm satisfied with how this game went. As I mentioned, Isaac Smith, game-high 36 disposals, also a goal behind 11 marks, 947 meters. Tom Stewart, the Bulldogs still don't know how to play him. 29 disposals, 15 intercepts, 14 marks, 510 meters. Sam Menegola behind 27 disposals, 486 meters. Brandon Parfit, 
a behind 26 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 tackles, 8 clearances. Jack Bowes in his 100th game, 25 disposals. Max Holmes a behind, 22 disposals, 9 marks. Mark O'Connor, 20 disposals. Tom Atkins a goal, 19 disposals, 12 contested possessions, 8 tackles. I love that the midfield played well enough that you weren't asking Atkins to get 30 disposals, but he still was, you know, super intense physical Tom Atkins. Ryan Myers a goal, 19 disposals. Max Holmes hitting the post robbed him of an assist. Patrick Dangerfield, a goal and a behind, 18 disposals and nine marks. And nobody loved that Dangerfield goal more than Isaac Smith, who nearly jumped over him and just toppled him at the end of the third quarter. You know what? The Cats missing finals means that we get Mad Monday for them earlier, and it was a very good Mad Monday. Isaac Smith taking Patrick Dangerfield's old Crows uniform and turning it to Ben Keys. Tom Hawkins and Cam Guthrie being the goalposts and Billy Brownless fuffing up, trying to be the goal umpire. You had a very convincing Ron Weasley from uh, from Gary Rowan, but Zach Cooey was not Reg Catterall. No, that was disappointing. Brad Close went as Tyson Stengel, I believe. Obviously, Grian was messy. Uh, Max Holmes was Jared Wakeley. They they played along very well. Unfortunately, even with all the great stuff about Mad Monday and the Cats, as we take our break, we have to go right because Grian Myers was not included in the All-Australian squad, so... Grab your torches, pitchforks, and cotton candy, and join us after the break. Cotton candy, get your cotton candy, get to ride that cotton candy. Quoth Billy Joel, you ought to know by now. We are on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. Individually, I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media, and Brian Harambe, who is currently sleeping next to me, is on Instagram at CatNamedGrogget. Before we get back into things, also just want to shamelessly plug that Ethan does really great work regarding high school sports around here in the Bay Area. So for Australians who want to get a bit of a lens into that, follow Ethan's socials for that. I feel like even though there's not going to be a lot of relevance there, I feel like Australians think like the concept of American high school sports is pretty, pretty fascinating. I think a lot of countries do. So yeah, tune in and uh, let's drive up those page view counts. I've created some of the graphics for your, for his website because graphic design is my passion. West Coast Eagles 12-6-78, defeated by the Adelaide Crows 17-21-123. The Eagles led this game by 12 at halftime and only trailed by 7 at three-quarter time, but it was a very Crows reason as to why that happened. Against a better team, this could have been another Crows loss where they were dominant but couldn't kick accurately. Yeah, the Crows kicked 1-4 in the second and 6-8 in the third when they really had a chance to put it away. Kicked 6-4 in the fourth to close it out. Eagles were held goalless in the fourth. Um, Taylor Walker, 9-4 off 21 disposals, 11 marks and 636 meters gained. His second big bag against the Eagles this season. So he ties Charlie Curnow with 19 goals scored against West Coast on the year. And also Tex and Nick Larkey combined to make this past Saturday the first day in 27 years in AFL play on which multiple players kicked nine goals. You have to go back to June of 1996, a day on which two of the top three goal kickers of all time, Tony Lockett and Jason Dunstall, each kicked bags. So are we also like accepting that a bag is five or more? Or? Uh, I mean, there's, there's no way in arguing that nine is not a bag. It's era dependent. I think today five or six is a bag back then you could argue that it, that you had to get to seven or eight it's also a bit player dependent as well honestly it's like you see Dunstall kicking six goals back in the day and you think okay blase no big deal 
this was a game that that I was just waiting for the Crows to take control of for a while. As I said, they ended up doing so late once they actually managed to kick well. The Eagles put on good pressure, but the weight of repeat entries ended up being too much. Ended up being too much for them. Crows were plus 26 on inside 50s, 67 to 41, and they doubled them up on marks inside 50, 22 to 11. Some experience did play into that as well. Still, a younger Eagles lineup, in a sense, even with Luke Shuey and Shannon Hearn coming back in for their finales. Shuey taking two bounces and then kicking his last goal on his left had me feeling some type of way about this game. Honestly, it was his son who stole the show, though, afterward, because Ollie Shuey was soaking up all the attention as his father was doing a lap. Ollie was running behind him, waving, somersaulting through the Guard of Honor, and Luke decided to do one as well, because why not? Were somersaults, like, a thing of news, or was it just kids screwing around thing? I think it was just Ollie being a kid, and Luke was like, sure, I'll do it too. I was just glad he didn't injure his hamstring doing it. That was my big concern. The other great Eagles thing out of this game, Tom Cole kicked a goal. Tom fucking Cole kicked a goal. He had kicked three goals in his career before this. They came in three consecutive games in late 2020, which just makes it even weirder. I'm hoping he's able to stay healthy. His ankle has been an issue throughout his career. Even as a premiership defender, there's doubt around him because of that. But with Hearn out, he would need to take on a more important role as one of their big intercept marks. I hope that he's able to stand up to that. When it comes to what the Crows did well, they got a lot of opportunities. They just weren't able to convert on them. In the early third, early in the third quarter, they noted on the broadcast that they had kicked just five goals from 33 inside 50s. But what ended up impressing me the most about the Crow, but what ended up impressing me the most with Adelaide was the various talls all doing a good job as marks. You had Taylor Walker, obviously Darcy Fogarty, but also Lockie Gallant being very serviceable, also as a ruck at times. And then when Riley Philthorpe came in, he served his role very well also. Weird that you saw Riley O'Brien get subbed out in his 100th game. I'm wondering if that was planned. I mean, a tall sub usually implies that there's some sort of clear like-for-like -like plan there. I was wondering if maybe it was Gallant, though, that was... I'm thinking now, though, maybe it was Gallant that was expected to come off before he made his case to stay in with the play he had. It's a predicament for the Crows going into 2024 between... Gallant, O'Brien, Phil Thorpe. Honestly, as of now, I would say if Gallant and Phil Thorpe continue to go well, going through the summer leading up to the start of the season, I could totally see Riley O'Brien starting the year of the twos, which is not something I would have expected, but I think the others are more versatile players, and despite not being Crows fans, we also just may be the biggest Riley Phil Thorpe fans on this side of the Pacific. Other things, uh, Oscar Allen finished the season well. He entered this game on 49 goals, ended up with 53. A couple more in-play goals for him were a surprise. His previous career high was 28, but this was also the first year that he was the main target. Before you had Josh Kennedy and Jack Darling very clearly playing in front of him, Kennedy was cited at this game because he and Liam Duggan chaired off Luke Shuey. So that, that was unexpected. I thought it would have been another one of the current players to, to chair him off. But, but it was Kennedy and Duggan doing that for Shuey and Andrew Gaff and Jeremy McGovern chairing off Shannon Hearn. I thought it would have been McGovern and maybe Cole to, to carry off one of their own in the back line. I would like to have seen players getting chaired off while fixing a headband. That would have been a very Selwood thing. You know what? No. It's going to happen at the end of Aaron Naughton's career for a very different headband-related reason, but it should happen, yes? 
or, or what he that's that's what I was going for. The oh, okay. Torrens deal. Yeah. Well, in his last game, when Naughton announces his retirement, every single one of his teammates and the coaching staff, even all the fans, everyone should be wearing a headband for that last game. We need to make this happen, regardless of whether he's a dog, eagle, docker, whatever, at the end of his career. The Crows scored the most points this season in the home and away play. 2,193. They beat out the Lions by 13. Obviously, doubling up against the bottom two helps with that. But this also makes it the first time since 1968 that the highest scoring team has not made finals. And, you know, had that Ben Keys goal counted, you could have seen him jump into seventh. Well, who knows how the Demons play this week with something on the line, etc. There's there's a lot of fun hypotheticals to do here. At this point, I think the Crows kind of hypothetical themselves and their clavicle. Not just with that, but also with how many close losses they had. Let's consider, yes, they padded their scoring numbers for the season by playing against some bad teams multiple times, but also they kind of sabotaged themselves with all the points they pissed away and left out there. So I think I think them being the highest scoring team is actually appropriate. And they finished it off with back-to-back six goal quarters. Rory Laird, a game-high 37 disposals, 13 score involvements. Jordan Dawson, 24 disposals, 9 tackles. Jake Saligo, remember a few weeks ago, he was really struggling. He finished on a good note. Two goals, two behinds, 24 disposals, 12 score involvements, 500 meters. Yeah, it was really Harry Schomburg coming in when Saligo struggled, and Matthew Nixon company have found a way for them to coexist in the lineup, and I'm very happy about that. Mitch Hinge, 23 disposals and eight intercepts. Brody Smith, a behind in 20 disposals. Josh Rochelle, three goals and a behind, 18 disposals, eight marks. Lockie Gallant, a goal, two behinds, 14 disposals, 10 score involvement, seven marks. And speaking of marks, Mark Keane had 10 of them, plus eight intercepts. The only number 48 this year in the AFL. The matchup against Oscar Allen was a difficult one for him, but I'm going to back him in going into next year, especially, you know, they're going to continue to have some big outs there with Tom Duday and Nick Murray sidelined for most, if not all, of the season. Keane and James Morales are going to have to grow into mainstay roles from round one next year and with how Keen started off his time with the Crows in showdown ever since then I've really thought highly of him coming back in from Gaelic football and doing so well so I hope he can keep that up wow Tim Kelly led the Eagles in disposals because of course he did 35 of them along with eight clearances and 831 meters gained Liam Duggan with 29 nine marks and 495 meters for some reason, uh, even though I, I know Liam Duggan's 26, it feels like he's older. There's only going to be a 10th season coming up next year. That's probably part of it. Brady Hoff ended the year well with 26 disposals and 12 marks. I hope he's able to play more freely, play on the wing next year. That would require them getting a bit more backline depth, so we'll see about that. I am the Brady Hoff enjoyer. Jack Darling kicked 3-1 off 17 disposals to complement Oscar Allen's 4-1. Allen is the only Eagle named to the All-Australian squad. And then the retirees, Luke Shuey, a goal from 25 disposals and 544 meters gained. As I mentioned, that goal was on the left, took a couple bounces. And Shannon Hearn, 22 disposals, 506 meters. Fans were begging for him to go for a torp or something, but that's just not his MO. He just plays the same way the whole way through. And these guys are going to be very sorely missed at the club. I hope they stay involved in multiple capacities. We know that Nick Natanui will. This was a send-off opportunity for him. He'll stay involved with his academy. I'm thankful that these are the most difficult exits that are going to be made from this premiership era and that they're all happening at once. 
It'll be a continued adjustment period. They've backed in Adam Simpson for it. He's staying coach for next year, dot, dot, dot. As weird as it sounds, I'm glad that that's happening because they hadn't made this game a send-off for him. Mostly with their financial situation, I think that's part of a factor because they'd have to pay him out and go for another coach, and Simpson's got two more years on his deal still. I would have liked to have a succession plan be announced, whether that involves one of the current assistants like Jared Schofield or bringing Dean Cox into the mix, who's over with Sydney. I realized the Swans have two Premiership Eagles on their coaching staff between Dean Cox and Don Pike. That's kind of strange. But oh, oh yeah, um, the Eagles have pick one. The triple wooden spoon Eagles between AFL, Waffle, and the women's last year. Ethan, shortly after the final siren sounded, brought a wooden spoon up from the kitchen for, for me to have. Yeah, I... So I had a week earlier after they had won, I had said, damn it, this spoiled my plan of giving you a wooden spoon. And then I saw it coming regardless. I don't think you did. No, I did. It, it feels way too lobby. It's like, you know, fans taunting the last place club with spoons at the end of the year at soccer matches. It's it's like that. Or like the I forget which Premier League team it was you know, where they like had a funeral for another club. Oh, honestly, it involved Aston Villa, whether they were the ones doing it or if it was being done to them. But it was funny. On to Sunday, Port Adelaide 13-16-94, defeating Richmond 8-15-63. The Power lock up third place, so they'll be traveling to the GABA in Week 1 of Finals, so have fun with that. You watching this game probably makes you miss Frank Evans on Geelong's list even more. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I was pretty burned out from a lengthy weekend working where I mostly just watched the first quarter while you were busy and then I passed the torch to you, but yeah, I, I do miss him. Yeah, Evans had one of the best plays of the round. It's awesome outside-of-the-boot soccer charging in from the side into the goal square. That was fun. He had another three-goal showing. This wasn't really a convincing team performance for the power, though. No, but it's not like, you know, with the Lions winning the day before, they weren't playing for a home final. Yeah, it was kind of just go through the motions. It was pretty much a dead rubber. I'm not going to look too much into it. Yeah, just it took until the second half for them to really get their transition game together which was a bit of a surprise with the undermanned midfield for the Tigers now that Trent Cotchins retired, for example, along some other players that were out. But the Butters, Rosie Horn, Francis Trio ended up finding their form. Ollie Wines with another solid game. He's really come back into things again in terms of some of the midfield play, kind of the, the lake out of midfield to half forward at times the last few weeks. That's going to be very necessary going into finals. Things to be expected from this game. Sam Powell Pepper scoring Port's first goal because Sam Powell Pepper. Three Riolis in action. Willie being the most prominent of them. Daniel being hampered at times by a couple injuries. Morris ending up doing his hamstring, unfortunately. I also expected Noah Balta to be playing more forward because that seems like a pretty firm decision from Andrew McWalter. And sure enough, he did stay forward. Matched up against Alir. Alir did that pretty well. Alir had to get a lot more aggressive than usual in marking contests to neutralize him. And then Richmond also continued with having Yvonne Soldo. So we've seen how Andrew McWalter is going to play the hand that he's been dealt if he gets the job. You know, thinking about Balta, especially with the questions that we've had about Balta playing in defense with a couple guys kicking some big bags on him, Harrison Petty being one of them. Max King, I believe, played on Balta as well and kicked six. So with the concerns there, another reason I understand Balta playing forward, and also if Jimmy Trezice can stay solid in defense as he did on his debut, good early showing from him, interceptor early and often, 
and managed to be involved in a couple of their scores as well. So if you have Trezice there and Tyler Young is a centerpiece in the back line, I can get why Baltic could stay forward and that could potentially work. The funniest thing to happen in this game was Noah Cumberland probably watching this and doing a Leo DiCaprio style point at the screen when Jason Horn Francis took a mark right before three-quarter time, didn't know how much time was left, handball to Kane Farrell, could not kick it in time. So that kept it at a one-goal game heading into the fourth quarter. They just still, it you know, like the Brisbane game, even with Port's inaccuracy, it didn't feel like a game they were going to lose. And then they kicked five goals to one of the last. Once they had found their transition early in the third quarter, I felt pretty secure about them being able to lock up this game. And they did. Good game out of some of my favorites for the power as well, including Xavier Dersma. But the normal names for Port showed up when they needed to. Plus, Dersma and Frank Evans doing well. And now they're looking ahead to a very different Lions team in, in terms of style and strength from the one that they thrashed in round one in Adelaide. I love that one of Port or Brisbane will be hosting a preload, just to, because the road's going to be so much tougher for their opponent. No, just because we've seen both these teams struggle in those spots, and it's an, just an opportunity for a bit of redemption then. I, I mean, yeah, yeah, you can call it redemption of the Lions, even, if they get, even when they go undefeated at home. It's a chance to prove you're not cursed. Look, even if they make the grand final, they can still be cursed by the G. Connor Rosie kicked 1-2 from 33 disposals, 11 score involvements in 612 meters. There's been some debate this year about which player is going to be better long-term between Rosie and Butters. I think Rosie could be a more durable player because of, of Butters being the more aggressive one in the contest and some early injury history for him as well, but big fan of both of them. Butters with 30 disposals, 9 clearances, and 7 marks. Dan Houston kicking 1-1 from 27 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 marks in 628 meters. Did he wrap up the Golden Fist? I'm a few weeks behind on bounce, actually, but I would assume so. I would have to think so. Ryan Burton and Kane Farrell with 23 disposals each, both gained over 600 meters. Farrell with eight score involvements as well. He and Houston, both just extremely good long kicks. You see it more going toward goal for Houston. In fact, Dan Houston has a career-high nine goals this season, and one of them has made him immortal. Xavier Dersma kicked 1-2 from 22 disposals, 9 score involvements, and 7 marks. Got the chance to pull out the archery celebration then. Willem Drew with 20 disposals and 8 tackles. Port were 24% more efficient disposing of the ball inside 50. And they controlled the ball enough despite being minus 28 in hitouts, 40-12. to 12. Sam Hayes was the one to take most of the ruck work before he got subbed out. And otherwise, it was Jeremy Finlayson and Ollie Lord going up against two bulky Ruckman and, and good hit-out guys in Toby Nankurvis and Yvonne Soldo. So that checks out. Richmond were plus 11 in contested marks as well, using some of their height there. I love looking at the bounces because that because that really shows how clean your transition is or or how you can, might be building out of the back. I always look at it as just an indicator of which team had running room. That's the other thing that I was going to say. Port doubled them up on bounces, 22 to 11. Dustin Martin, a goal of behind, 33 disposals, 12 score involvements. Thompson Dow, 27 disposals. Jaden Short, a behind, 26 disposals and 8 marks. And Toby Dan Curvis, a behind, 24 disposals and 22 hitouts. I've heard some very mixed reviews on Dow. Pretty aggressive in terms of, of getting the ball. His efficiency, not the highest. I am of the opinion that he should stay on, especially with the changing the guard of the midfield well underway. 
we'll see how they determine things down at Punt Road. I think it's going to be a really weird offseason for Richmond where they're, they could go in a lot of different directions. They're definitely at a crossroads right now from an organizational standpoint. Sydney, 7-14-56, defeated by Melbourne, 11-11-77, denying the Swans a home final. The Demons came into this game already locked into fourth place because of the result right before them. They still went for it, though, completely. And unfortunately, they caught a really big injury, losing Jake Melksham to an ACL. When you saw that it was a non-contact knee injury, you, you suspected it right away. That was confirmed. And he really made a case for him to stay in long term, even with Bailey Fritch coming back in. A lot of Melksham's work kind of as a defensive forward had been praised. I noticed it last week when he was playing on James Sicily. And that's going to be the toughest part to replace because there's no real like for like there with Fritch or I imagine Tom McDonald would be next in line. He can he can be a defender, but but he's but he's much less agile than someone like Melksham. So that's going to be difficult for them to manage. The good news is they do have more than enough guys, and you have Joel Smith's versatility. It, along with McDonald's. It honestly, it just sucks from the standpoint of Melksham had been playing really well. It's not how do we replace Melksham. I, 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 think it, I think it's still a bit of that. I think it's much more he had forced the issue. Especially also after missing out on the 2021 Premiership, being part of their 2022 VFL flag winning side. This was his big opportunity, and it ends like this. Swans came out swinging in the third quarter after going down eight at half. They kicked the first four goals of the third, and it looked like they were about to pull away, and then they didn't kick another goal for the game. I really liked what they'd done with some of the one-on-one matchups they decided on. Logan McDonald was the right type to go against Jake Lever. Isaac Heaney cut off Judd McVie a decent amount. He plays above his height in contests, and McVie is someone that, even as a first-year, has been tough to match up against this year. So they did good things there, but after these forwards had done a good job in the first half and they honored one of the greatest forwards the game had ever se- has ever seen at the half, they lost touch. The Demons kicked the final six goals they outscored in the fourth quarter, 27-2. Welcome back, Bailey Fritch, huh? Yeah, nice little five-goal performance there, and that's, again, that's one of the reasons that the Melksham injury, it's more, you know, I think it hurts more from a sentimental standpoint than it may from an actual football standpoint. There was also a concern that Fritch could have re-injured his foot. He had come off during the third quarter and the broadcast, and the commentators were really worried about it more than I was at first when I saw it, but he came back on for the third and had an excellent end to the game. He gave them the lead a few minutes into the fourth quarter with his third goal and had the final two goals of the game as well. Yummy, 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 yummy. I think I do a better voice on that. Keep going. You've got much more in the way of analysis than I do this week. It's kind of a you heavy show. Yeah, I'm just just looking through some of my some of my notes here. Okay. Where Melbourne had so where did Melbourne have the advantage of this game other than than the goal kicking? Obviously, Max gone going against 150th gamer Tom Hickey in the ruck. As much as we like Hickey, that was a clear advantage to gone. Hickey has played better lately, and whereas the Swans outdid him in the air, going plus 20 in marks. It was the way Melbourne attacked the contest that won them consistent possession. And I've noticed ever since Clayton Oliver went down, just how much Jack Viney's fearlessness rubs off on every other demon. He's a leader of the club in multiple ways. And when you ha- when, when you see one of your veterans and your vice captain just going at the contest the way that he does, it, it wakes you up and 
and everybody follows suit. Even guys who tend to have more forward time in there, thinking like Alex Neil Bullen going toward half forward, Kate Chandler at times. I think Melksham going out may magnify Chandler's role. And I wouldn't be shocked if Chandler had some more pocket time and maybe tried to put on more of a defensive job and a pressure role as well. So watch for that. It's not something that I thought of before I started talking about it here. Again, even with the Ds having to fight back in this game, the way they did it is pretty predictable if you watched them go further back, go since the King's birthday game, really. And they go into finals, even though they're in fourth and have to match up against Collingwood. I mean, they took care of him on the King's birthday without Oliver. They go in winning seven of eight, with the one loss being on a debatable call. They're in reasonably good health. Well, wait, multiple wait. debatable calls. Yeah, true. I mean, I'm just thinking about the March Bank one in particular, but they come in in good health. It's a way more aggressive, it's a way more aggressive brand of footy that we've seen this year from them than in the past couple of years. Simon Goodwood has realized what changes them need to be made, especially to match up against the top teams. I really like their chances. Christian Petraka, a goal of behind, 29 disposals, 17 contested possessions. Jack Viney also with 29 disposals, he had 12 tackles. Clayton Oliver, 25 disposals and 7 tackles. Angus Brayshaw, a goal of behind, 22 disposals. Lockie Hunter, who I think he deserves a lot more credit for the season he's had. Especially with Ed Lagden having a down year, Hunter has managed to pick up some of the slack. And also with Brayshaw having to go more into a contested role during Oliver's absence and keeping that since, that's right. I wouldn't even call it a down year for Langdon. I would just say that he's been able to work like kind of in addition to him. Langdon hasn't gotten as much of the ball in the compared to the past couple is what is what I really mean by that, I guess. But also having Petraka going in the contest as hard as he does along with Viney. That that's the, the the stuff that I was talking about with that play rubbing off on everybody else. Stephen May with a behind, 21 disposals, 10 intercepts, 550 meters. Bailey Fritch, five goals straight, 16 disposals. Alex Neil Bolin, a behind, 16 disposals, and 12 tackles. That ties a career high. For Neil Bolin in terms of tackles, got to go back to 2018 for the one other time that he's reached that number. So Neil Bolin, Chandler, those are the types of guys that I expect to be more aggressive in terms of tackling and pressure in the forward half with Melksham out. So they have the capability to cover that loss there. The Swans were the more efficient team in terms of disposals by over 7%. But when you kick 714, that's the big thing there. Errol Golden had all sorts of the sharing in this game. Two goals straight and 572 meters gained from, count them, 42 disposals. This guy's going to win a Brownlow. Callum Mills, a goal from 30 disposals, 12 tackles, and 10 score involvements. Mills ended up running with Clayton Oliver and limiting him a lot. I think the switch to Petraka needed to be made sooner, and maybe that could have allowed the Swans to stay in the game. I don't think that would have done it alone, but it's something that I question. Luke Parker kicked two behinds, 23 disposals, 16 contested possessions, eight clearances, and seven tackles. That's still a very Luke Parker game. Chad Warner, a goal from 22 disposals, and Jake Lloyd with 21. Only 22 Sydney Swans played in this game. For the second time this year, they went without using their sub, that being Aaron Francis. He was not originally going to be in, I believe, and then... No, he, he was the sub all along. But it was uh, Ryan Clark coming straight into the 22 for Tom Papley. Now, that is a pretty important out there. Papley wasn't able to get in after being subbed out last week with hamstring tightness. Should be good to go for finals, it sounds like, though. Yeah, should be. And, I mean, that's a that was a 
pretty big loss considering issues with some of the goal kicking accuracy. Even though the Swans were able to get some decent uh, get some decent marks, could have helped with some of the work on the deck. So going back, I'm going back. If I watch this game again, I'll I'll just kind of look for cases where I could see Padley being able to have an impact where other players weren't able to do so for the Swans. Carlton 11-7-73, defeated by GWS, 16-9-105, and they did it without Sam Taylor. I mean, look what Carlton was playing without. You You thought, I was thinking that Mackay would have a lot more of an impact as a result with basically everybody else taking a step down, but after giving up a couple goals to give Charlie Carnell a second consecutive Coleman, Buckley seemed to just get out of his own head and, and played a lot more freely ended up leaving that Cornell assignment sometimes to impact other contests in a really good way. So, well done, Jack Buckley. Even though Cornell scored three, I really liked how Buckley played. And Mackay, meanwhile, does not know what he's doing in the ruck, and he was the second ruck behind Tom DeConing, with no Pitnet, no Silvani. Carlton had nothing to play for in this game, really, other than kind of deciding their opponent, because they were locked into fifth. So they, they didn't have much to play for, no reason to chance any injuries. And they did it. Once Blake Akers had a bit of a collarbone issue, they subbed him off pretty quickly. I found it funny that their sub was a former Giant in Caleb Marchbank. So you know how, even before this season, we were wondering, why did these guys double up so much? Well, of the 125 players who have gotten an AFL game for Greater Western Sydney, 15 of them have also gotten a game for the Blues. That is 12%. That is disproportionate. Maybe that explains it. Giants up 52 to 47 at the break and then pulled away with a five goals to two third quarter, 33 to 12 in all. The real star of this game, I think, though, was Nana Canelio. It was her grandson Steven's 200th game was part of the throng that he had brought out from the West to watch it. She is 90 and she seems to really enjoy it. She saw him kick a couple goals and after the game, she was down in the rooms. I saw I saw her talking with Josh Kelly after the game, among others. I don't think she was in the circle, though. I'm not, I don't think so. I think it was exclusively players. So no, not quite an Alex Davies grandpa moment. No, and she also didn't have to come all the way from Japan. There's a lot of the usual suspects for GWS. I mean, Tom Green, Harry Himmelberg, Brent Daniels back in the lineup, Lockie Ash, Toby Green, Lockie Whitfield as well. But... Really, the story for the Giants this year, other than Sam Taylor coming back in and solidifying their defense, obviously that wasn't the case in this game. They were just, they did the job regardless, but it's been really the smalls for the Giants. It, it, it hasn't just been Toby Green this year. Between Daniels and Bedford, he's got a lot of support there. You can have all three of them rushing in from half forward, and Bedford could be out for their elimination final because of a suspension for rough conduct against Zach Fisher, which the Giants are challenging. I'm surprised Jacob Wittering didn't get a suspension for potential eye gouge against Toby Green until I remembered, one, this is the Blues we're talking about, two, Jared Berry got off for worse last year. That was the one against Clayton Oliver in the semi, and that it was against Toby might have been a factor, too. By the way, I'm just, I'm just very happy about what the Giants have done this year. I said, like, right around their bye week that they already did everything they needed to to make this season a success and and that Adam Kingsley should be coach of the year and I think that is unquestionable now. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty much locked in. Well done. You know what? Nope. I think Michael Voss could win it. With the nine-game streak, the Blues went on them making the finals. If they win a final, even if the Giants win one, if the Blues win a final, then I think Voss could pip Kingsley for it. I don't know. I'm I'm all on the Kingsley train. 
you know, talking about Blake Akers coming off, his absence ended up becoming really obvious. The Giants kicked the next seven goals after he came off. He'd maybe been the best on ground before he exited the game, playing really all over the midfield laterally. Could you imagine having a player that good on your team? I certainly wouldn't give him up for, for like, you know, a third round pick. That's probably the biggest thing I can laugh in the Dockers' face about, is that Blake Akers is playing finals and they're not. Once Akers came off, the Giants' advantage in terms of speed and punishing the Blues' mistakes was really magnified. There's one other player that you didn't mention for the Giants, though, that, that may not have gotten huge numbers, but was really impactful, played really clean footy, and was the player that I noticed the most off stoppages and contests, and that's Callan Ward. 16 disposals, a goal, 5 clearances for Ward, 8 of his possessions were contested. He's not one of the main guys in there anymore at age 33, but when he, but if he can still play like this going into the end of the season, that's exactly the type of performance that Greater Western City will need if they are to potentially win a final, or multiple. I think I know not many people are going to be picking them, but I think defensively, they have what it takes. Taylor's healthy, yeah. They're in a position where, even without him, Nick Haynes was the sub in this game. And even without Toby Bedford, Daniels has been the more impactful of the two this year. I mean, I, I love watching both of them, but if I had to pick one of them, it would be Binga. I love out of this game, though, just think, thinking about both these clubs. The Giants were at 15th after round 12 and made it. They were 3-7, and seven, I believe, and made it. Meanwhile, their crosstown rivals, the Swans, were in 15th after round 17. So, amazing work by both the New South Wales squads. Shame that they aren't on the same side of things and won't be able to match up unless it's one of the biggest surprise grand final matchups we ever see. That also would have been to the, to the Giants' advantage had they had a Sydney Derby final because they've won all three of those. Pretty amazing they've already had three finals matchups in their previous 11 years of existence. It was three in their first 10 for the Giants. Meanwhile... Who do the Swans play? The Blues. Carlton's last final was against the Swans 10 years ago, and they were held scoreless in the third quarter. Maybe this is a chance for them to finally say, we've recovered from that humiliation. As you said, even the usual suspects came up big in terms of possessions for the Giants. Tom Green with 35 disposals, 20 contested, and 8 clearances. Even had Patrick Cripsman in there, I would have backed Tom Green in to win that matchup. The way he's played this year, it's hard to take anyone against Tom Green. I mean, other than like, what, Bond? Other than Bond and Pellier, even Caleb Sarong. Lockie Whitfield with 32 disposals, 7 marks and 515 meters. Steven Ganilio kicked 2-2 in his 200th with 28 disposals and 539 meters gained. Josh Kelly also got 28 disposals, 7 tackles and 491 meters. He's been a lot more noticeable this year as well. Maybe it's just because we've been watching the Giants a lot more closely, but I had underrated Josh Kelly going into this year. Harry Himmelberg. Harry! With 24 disposals and 549 meters working for the back. Brett Daniels, a goal from 23 and 10 score developments. Lockie Ash, 21 and 525 meters. Toby Bedford, 19 disposals. We'll see what his deal is for the first final. It'll be good business for Schnitz. Connor Iden in the back with 18 disposals and 10 intercepts. He's played a lot better this year than last. He was really shaky for a good portion last year, and was also thrown forward at times, but the steady back roll has done him and Himmelberg well. It putting Iden back and Callum Brown forward seems to be the obvious decision. It's a no-brainer. Also with 18 disposals, Dan Lloyd, who got a goal. I believe this was game 98 for him, so if they win a final, he will get to 100. He's on the way out. Toby Green kicking 4-2 from 18 disposals. I would say all-Australian captain. 
but I think it's going to be Malton Pelly. I would have no opposition to either of those. And Kieran Briggs, 22 hitouts, 17 disposals, and 9 clearances. You see him and Oscar McInerney and Tim English at times creating big clearance numbers, but I think Briggs' clearances may be the most effective out of all of those. When you've got those midfielders to go to, it certainly helps. The Giants were nearly 12% more efficient with the ball, and even though they were minus 11 in hitouts, I'm just so, that's how complimentary I am of Kieran Briggs that he was able to make up for, for losing those initial taps. Sam Walsh, 28 disposals to lead the Blues. Nick Newman, a behind in 25. David Cunningham, a behind in 24. That was not a guy that I was thinking was going to end up being a mainstay in this lineup at all, and he's been one of the more unexpected surprises out of this whole run of good play from the Blues. Well, considering it also took him over two years to get back into the lineup, and he came in right when the streak began, yeah, I'd say that was unexpected. Adam Chera, 23 disposals, not woof. Mitch McGovern, 22, 640 meters. Patty Dow, 21, eight clearances. Did not expect Dow and Walsh to coexist in the 22, but I like it. I mean, maybe that doesn't happen once you get Cripps back in. I think he will be the sub, and I hope Geelong make a play for him to come home. Zach Fisher, a goal in 21 disposals. Adam Saad, woof, there it is. A 21 disposal, 11 intercept game. George Hewitt, a goal in 20 disposals. Jacob Wiedering, 18 disposals, 13 intercepts, 7 marks. And Tom DeConing, a goal, 34 hitouts, and 16 disposals. The Giants put Lockie Keefe up on Jacob Wiedering a decent amount, and he worked through that all right. So we've got our 8. And you know how usually there are 2 changes? 2, double it, 4, as you wish, sir. 4 changes for the previous year ties an AFL era record. Thank you to Max Lawton of Fox Footy for that tidbit. The Blues and Saints both jump up four spots from last year. The Power jump up eight, and the Giants jump up nine. I am so happy that the Giants got in for so many reasons. But uh, the Power getting to third makes this the ninth consecutive season in which a, a club has gone from outside the eight to into the top four. They would have been, if you had to pick one at the start of the year, it would have been them. Just like for next year, Geelong would be the most obvious pick for that. And Adelaide behind them? Yeah. If it's anyone... Other than those two, that would be a surprise. Frio going from 5th to 14th to top 4 would be the strangest reality, because even with Hawthorne, I could see it more. And for Week 1 of Finals, uh, people kind of saw the schedule coming. You got Collingwood and Melbourne on Thursday. I love that Collingwood fans are bitching about playing a Thursday final, when honestly it's probably the best thing. Exactly, you get an extra day of rest compared to your opponent. You're obviously going to play the Friday prelim final if, the, if you win, the Friday semifinal if you lose. You know, that, that's a big thing there is keeping each side of the bracket on a similar schedule to each other, which is why you got the Blues and Swans on Friday. I hope the Saints draw well against GWS, make it a game worthy of the G. I think they get like, I don't know, 60-ish? What was the crowd again for their uh, 150th anniversary game? I think it was like, what, 66, 67? I'm double-checking now on that. It was... 69,255, and, and yes, that was against nice. S Yes, nice, but yes, that was against Essendon, but still, that was largely a Saints crowd. So, hopefully they show out again. It will be their first final at the G since the 2010 replay. It's time now to, for the final time this year, close out an episode with our Mark and Goal of the Week nominees. I mean, we'll still have awards of some sort, I think, during finals. Just talk about, like, plays of the week in some capacity. When the final nominees come out, we'll mention that as well, of course. But yeah, the last weekly stuff here, 
Your round 23 mark of the week winner was Jack Zebel over Liam Baker. Totally cool with that. I think that was the right winner. Your round 24 nominees, you've got Mitch Owens over Josh Dunkley. You've got Aaron Naughton completely jumping over O'Sheen Mullen. And you've got Luke Parker kind of sliding for a one-handed mark in the pocket against Daniel Turner. I gotta go Naughton here. I go Naughton as well because of the sheer height that the astronaut got on that. He didn't cleanly clear the ball, but he, he nearly got all the way over him. And Parker's was a cool, like, American football-style catch. Not as cool as what Charlie Dixon snagged a couple years ago against Essendon, though. Like, if you talk about great American football-style marks, that's the one I point to. I'm sorry, but you calling him astronaut, I just want to mention, I might have mentioned this in a prior episode, Astronaut in the Ocean, Kids Bop Edition. It exists? It exists. That's probably his goal song, isn't it? I don't know, we've never seen a list for them, so maybe they don't have them. Round 23's goal of the week was correctly chosen. Isaac Rankin fighting off Dayton Rampy to keep the ball alive on the boundary after a spoil, and then nailing the Chanana, which is such a great turn. I like saying that. Chanana. Chanana, Chanana. Chanana. Your final round nominees for goal of the week, you have Lockie Schultz. That That's how you pronounce his name, Schultz. With a roller deep from the pocket off the back of a marking contest. You have Oscar McInerney's snap after grabbing a ball in a pack of the goal square. I think some Saints fans were calling for a throw there, and I, I can understand why, but awesome nonetheless. But for me, the winner is pretty clearly Frank Evans with the check side soccer in the goal square after Xavier Durzma's snap went across the face. I really like that Schultz goal, but you, you could convince me Evans. Evans was the one that, like, in real time was harder to appreciate, but when you see the replays, it's like, okay, I, I, I get it now. I saw it right away. I believe by my instant reaction that I tweeted out was, Frank Evans, you wizard. And for the final main character of the home and away season, well, firstly, round 23's winner, we said, was Daniel Hoskin, the goal umpire that Billy Bradless had tried to imitate in the Mad Monday stuff for the Cats. It did not work well. Yeah, the problem is he called for a review. No, there was no review. It's just he called a point. I would say in a lot of weeks that Taylor Walker could be a nominee, but I, I didn't feel it as strongly as this one. I think he had two pretty clear candidates. Those being Nick Larky saying, fuck this tank, I'm a kick nine to snap the 20-game losing streak. And then, I don't know how many people saw this, but if you did, you couldn't forget it. I mentioned him earlier, Ali Shuey. Is Shuey the winner? I think we gotta put this up to a vote. I imagine people are gonna go with Suv. I don't know. I will put you listeners up to the task. All right, that's uh, that's gonna do it for the home and away season. We will, over the next week, have our two So You Didn't Crack the Eight episodes before we get into actually previewing finals. Those are always fun to do. It's a fun way to kind of look at expectation versus reality of the 10 teams that won't be playing in September, where they stand, what went right, what went wrong. Going to be somewhere we have a lot of praise for some of those teams and somewhere we just rip them. If you've been listening all along, you probably have a good sense of which ones we're going to have the nice things to say about and which ones are going to get ripped. So definitely tune in for those. Those those might be actually my favorite two episodes of the entire season, thinking about last year. So we'll dive into that later this week. Uh... Until then, follow our thoughts on all the footy news on Twitter at Americans Footy. We're on YouTube at that handle as well. I'm at BenjaminHK01. I'm at Castle Media. Brian Arambe is still sleeping next to me. He is on Instagram at CatNamedBrian. You should follow him. And I'm going to get to editing this so that you can hear it soon.